Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the Greatest Generation. It's a Star Trek podcast from a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. The holidays are over. We had a long break from recording the Greatest Generation, but we're back. Yeah. An imperceptible break to the to the listeners, but uh, that's how we like it. Yeah. I I'm very proud of the fact that we always release an episode, no matter what. Perfect record so far. Yeah. Knock on wood. Over the last uh, month or two, we've transitioned from a Seattle-based P.O. box, Adam, to a Los Angeles-based P.O. box. And I've given out the address uh, to our Los Angeles-based P.O. box a few times. Definitely uh, people have sent in emails asking for it. Yeah, where can people get it? Uh, just send an email to drunkshimoda at gmail.com and... Uh, and if I notice your email, I will ch- endeavor to get you that address. That's really the first battle right there. Yeah. Oh, and since you're going to be since you're going to be an Angelino soon, I've got a key for that PO box for you, Adam. Wow. So far the only key to anything in Los Angeles that I have at this moment in time. Um <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, speaking of only things, we only have received one thing in the P.O. box that was actually meant for us. I think I think I got a Christmas card for its previous user. But hey, that's nice. There was no return address on it, so I felt bad because a return to sender isn't going to result in anything, but I also didn't want to open somebody else's mail. So, so you're guessing that it was a Christmas card. Or did it, you open it? It was the form factor of a Christmas card, and it had a Christmas stamp on it. So I, I would have opened that thing. Really? Just yeah. see if there's like a $50 bill in there? Do you still have it? No, I, I put it back at the post office with no, not deliverable at this address written on it. Wow, that, that would have been a great Marin. <laughs> Us committing mail fraud <laughs> on the show. Do you want to do a, a uh, Greatest Gen mailbag episode with one mailbag item? God, I don't know if that's enough for a Marin, Ben. I mean, it's kind of rolling the dice. It is, but uh, we roll dice all the time. You know, we roll dice on Friendly Fire. We roll dice on Greatest Gen. My interest in gambling is basically the main thing about me. So, yeah, why not? <laughs> let's let's do it. It's a, I like it's a wonder chances. we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to disturb you. I'm receiving a code 47. Verify. It is code 47, sir. Start lead emergency frequency. Captain's eyes only. All right. This is from uh, Matt L. in Bountiful, Utah. Hmm. Uh, that sounds like a nice place. It's one of these ready post mailers that I never know how to open. It sort of looks like there's a tab that I'm supposed to pull, but I can't get it. I can't get it! More like difficult, Utah. (laughs) Alright, there is a crumpled up letter here. Dear Adam, Ben, Rob, and John. Wow! This is, uh, this is to, this is to a lot of us. Please find the enclosed challenge coins from Utah Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force 
with all the gratitude I can give you for your show's greatest generation, greatest discovery, and friendly fire. You provide a wonderful respite from a difficult career. I often save one of your shows for running along the river path near my office on my lunch break, and it is the best part of my day. You bring me joy. And uh, he says he went to the Denver live show last year in Austin this year. I, I think I remember meeting Matt L. That show was very memorable for a totally other reason uh, that we experienced in line. But I also definitely remember these people from the ICAC. The challenge coin is really cool. It's uh, it's about the size of like a silver dollar. It's not a great big giant one like... Uh, like our bloated-ass challenge coin. I thought if for its association with children, it might look like a uh, video arcade token. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're looking for ideas for challenge coins, uh, yeah. you can have that one, guys. We, we redesign ours every year, and there's no reason uh, there's no reason this agency couldn't do the same. I'm going to janky and lure you a couple of pictures of it. Yeah, do Adam. Oh, look at that. Wow. Yeah, we spoke briefly to uh, a couple of ICAC people, and uh, wow, it seems like their job is awful hard. And uh, it felt great to hear that we, in any way, yeah. uh, could help their days go better. <laughs> Boy, touring last year, we, we met some people that, that really do tough things. Like, uh, we met an interpreter who works in an asylum center, and that's, like, really, really challenging work right now especially and doing stuff like this is uh, I, I really admire people that uh, are, are able to do work like this because I certainly am not equal to that task there is no podcast that exists that could fix what would break in me uh, doing that kind of work that's <laughs> pretty awesome yeah um, well thank you so much uh, Matt and uh, everyone at your at your office for the great work that they do. We have uh, an assistant attorney general from the state of Utah on our side, in case anybody <laughs> was wondering. I often fly through the Salt Lake Airport these days, and uh, should I ever be detained <laughs> in, in a way that I deem wrongful, <laughs> yeah, I'll make you, sure to you, drop you've that You've got a name, name to drop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be like, I don't know this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, most people react that way when I drop their names. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, thanks so much. And if uh, if you have something that you would like to send us uh, to a physical address, uh, please go ahead and reach out. It's drunkshamoda at gmail.com. And we'll, uh, I do my best to keep an eye on that inbox and send the address to people who request it. You know, not not perfect. So if you don't hear back the first time, just try again. It's not It's not personal. It's just that... There are so many things coming into that inbox at all times that it's impossible to yeah, uh, to reply to everything. It's definitely been found by spammers, too. So it's like an extra element of dig that's yeah, required. Definitely. Well, Adam, do you want to get into the weird episode that we came here today to talk about? I really do. Right after what I am going to call a sufficient Marin. <laughs> I think that was good. That's all the Marin we needed. We we occasionally really luxuriate in a long Marin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there have been episodes where we go 20 minutes. That's that's too much. We Nobody don't need to wants do that. that. Nobody no. wants that. That's, that's too many clicks of the forward 30 seconds. That's what's called over-marinating. Yeah, sure is. 
It's fun to do a podcast with somebody that doesn't think you're funny. <laughs> it's just an act, Ben. I, oh, think okay. I think you're one of the funniest people. I only believe you're not funny for the show. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. All right, let's get into it. It's season five, episode 24, Empachnor. Do you realize how incredible this is? <laughs> no, of course you don't. I have the hardest time with the Nors. I always want to call them Noirs. <laughs> and no one on the show seems to have that problem. Yeah, well, you know... You're not supposed to use the word nor without the word neither appearing earlier in the yeah. sentence also. Right. So, should be neither Empoch nor Cardassian I or think you like found that. it. You found my main problem is grammatical. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah. It just, it's, it, not, it's not pronunciation whatsoever. It's like the the Ursula Le Guin rule of uh, of giving your your space alien characters names is like, like they have to pass your mental spell check. They can't right. just be like an assembly of nonsense letters. Yeah, that's what makes science fiction writing so difficult. It's coming up with names that are both sensical and nonsensical. Right. Very challenging. I think they do a good job of that on Star Trek for the most part. This is an episode that's a lot about mixing tone. And the mm -hmm. tone that this episode starts with is the single brass instrument of drinking alone. It's Quark's bar. Morn is at the bar by himself, and the occasional sound of what could be like a spoon in a garbage disposal. What was that? Going off <laughs> when Dax, Kira, and Worf walk in looking for a, a drink and an eat. Fun industrial noise. That's uh, just my nephew and Chief O'Brien repairing some conduit. This, uh, this happened to me and my wife uh, just the other day. We went out for a hamburger sandwich for lunch at an outdoor eatery uh, in Chinatown, in Los Angeles' Chinatown. And we sat, you know, ordered our burgers and we sat down at our picnic table and uh, we're having a pleasant conversation. And just with comedic timing, our burgers were ready and a jackhammer started at mm. the same moment. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was like, okay, I guess we're going to just wolf these down as fast as we can because this is intolerable. Made me think a lot about sound design and science fiction and specifically in Star Trek because like, the things that are meant to get your attention in Star Trek are the alert klaxons and right. the sound of laser fire or a, or a torpedo or something. But when you, get, when you get something that is like metal on metal like this... Uh, yeah. It really seems out of place in a way that gets your attention. It's a sound that you don't experience on Star Trek very often at all. And, yeah. And I think that that's because so many of the solutions to problems are so high tech and so advanced. And this is kind of an illustration of uh, the problem with this space station is uh, they they have Cardassian parts that they don't have access to the aftermarket for. And it's weird, right? Because you hear that this is some sort of plasma conduit issue, like plasma manifold, I think is what O'Brien calls it later. But yeah. like, it sounds like a dryer full of coffee beans. Like, it's, <laughs> like it sounds more mechanical than science-y. It's, uh, it's enough to drive off Kira, Dax, and Worf, who decide to go to the Klingon restaurant. How could that be any quieter, though? Uh, <laughs> 
I mean, I think that that was the premise of the joke, right? You, you get that guy singing at you the whole time. It's always your birthday at the Klingon restaurant, right? Right. Yeah. Worf gets a gets a sombrero. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on his head. The, the sombrero of Gach. Oh. <laughs> That'd be so much fun. Oh, it'd be great. I miss that guy. Terrible mistake for DS9 to have written that that set and that character off the show. Terrible mistake, and it seems like it seems like in this script they are admitting some some regret. Morn's ears look like belly buttons to me. Do you think the noise isn't an issue for him? Because he's not flinching at all uh, when the sound happens, and he's yeah. perfectly content to be at the bar. Morn has one place in the world that he wants to be, and he'll put up with almost anything to be there. I'm envious of him. It does seem nice. I, I wish I had a place I wanted to be most in the world. Yeah. Instead, it's just mild discomfort everywhere. Yeah. It's not really living in a place. <laughs> Nog is assisting Chief O'Brien in these plasma ducts. And uh, I was surprised that neither of them was wearing hearing protection, given this is like several walls away from where Quark's Bar is, but it's very loud in Quark's Bar. Right. Uh, you would think that Ferengis would have like really serious earplugs, given some of the capabilities their ears have been demonstrated to have. Their over-the-ear ear protection has got to be like, <laughs> what, two, two Frisbee golf discs? <laughs> I believe it's froth. Right. So as to avoid using the uh, trademarked Whammo brand name for flying discs. Mm, that would be how our show ends. The, uh, <laughs> a very protracted legal dispute with uh, With a the legacy Whammo toy people. company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one not associated with Star Trek at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you infringed our mark. Yeah, crushed, <laughs> crushed by Big Frisbee. That's yeah. that's how we go out. Totally. So Chief O'Brien and Odo actually bring the the problem with these plasma manifolds to Captain Cisco, who hears them out, and they explain like the only way to really fix this is to go get spare parts from this other identical space station that the Cardassians abandoned last year. It's the same design as this station. This is an episode in a series of episodes where uh, a decision is brought to Captain Sisko that he makes, and then he exits the story completely for the next 45 minutes. Is Sisko being sidelined? I don't know. You, you uh, speculated on an, a recent episode that maybe American History X is shooting around this time. Yeah. So maybe he's that getting... Holds getting breaks written into the into the scripts yeah i i say this as someone who loves watching avery brooks work like that's why i miss him yeah. but it also seems just exactly how a captain would be on a station like this right like, this is not the kind of job that a captain goes and and deals with it's it's a five minute conversation he has one day and then never thinks about it again and most of his life has got to be like that yeah, he's got to deal with that all the time. Yeah. He's not in the business of architectural salvage. No. You know who is? Garrick. <laughs> Lately, I've noticed everyone seems to trust me. It's quite unnerving. I'm still trying to get used to it. Which is a great pairing. I like the idea of putting him with O'Brien. 
Their mission is to go to Empaknor, which is like a sister station to Teraknor. Uh, and this is a this is a kind of science fiction that I love the most. Like one of my favorite episodes of TNG was the Nagilam episode. Yeah. Where the Enterprise runs into itself. It's the Yamato, our sister ship. The Yamato's nowhere near this quadrant. And it feels haunted and strange. And there are many other examples of like, anytime we see a version of the home that we live on on a show, and it's a little bit dark or fucked up or haunted feeling, like yeah. that is, that is a, that's a micro genre within this that I really love. Agreed. It's super fun. And, and they, you know, they're heading out to Empak Noor and they talk a lot about the, the stakes of even going there because it's an abandoned space station, but Cardassian policy is to leave booby traps behind when you leave a an installation like this. And uh, that is kind of tossed off near a Bolian enlisted man, like a like one of Chief O'Brien's engineers, presumably. And he goes uh, into the airlock where a bunch of other engineers are, you know, g- gathering bags that they're going to be bringing aboard. And we realize that this is going to be a bit of a lower decks episode. Didn't we just do crew evaluation reports? Yeah. <laughs> the transition is a little awkward. Like they just sort of swing the camera over yeah. to... It's the, the camera is following Chief O'Brien and Garrick and then it finds this bullion and then it's more interested in him than it is in the two characters that we know. Yeah, I mean, there's there are a couple ways that you see this done on television, and one of them is like the the dialogue handoff, where uh, a character will talk to a lower decks person, and then you're with them until the end of a scene, and you transition away. But this is a camera version of that, mm-hmm. and that's why it it sticks out a little bit. I like that every single one of these characters had a uh, had a Boston accent, though. <laughs> <laughs> when you're replacing the plasma manifold on an aging Cardassian space station, it's not easy to find those pots new in box on the shelves of your local hardware store. <laughs> That's why we're going to a similar space station in another part of town. God, I definitely know the answer to this question, Ben, but have you ever been to a scrapyard? Like yeah, a, absolutely. Like where they keep old cars where you can uh, pick and pull? Uh, I've never done the car kind, but my father is, was a, a contractor and uh, became an architect and uh, is, is a very handy guy and very uh, very interested in woodworking and stuff. So when when, uh, when I was a kid, there were lots and lots of trips to architectural salvage yards cool. and uh, you know places where you could find like, oh yeah, we have like twenty five banister pieces from a victorian house in san francisco that we like saved when they were knocking the house down it just blew my little kid mind to go to a place where you could sit inside 30 wrecked cars (laughs) you know while while my dad looked for a window crank to replace (laughs) the one that he had you know That's, that's just a fun day out yeah and that's sort of the vibe you get from this episode like they don't make these parts you have to go they, get one. You can't replicate them. There's something about the molecular structure of the parts that is that is impossible to replicate. So they make like a big list, right? Like there's a list of stuff they definitely need to get, stuff they'd like to get, and then stuff that would be cool to have if if they can find it. I like the implied we need to get value for the missionness of that moment, you know? 
Like right. while we're here and we have all these people, like let's not just get plan A, let's get some backup stuff too. I don't necessarily love the way they divide that work up though, because there's like two people on plan A, two people on plan B, two people on plan C. Yeah. They which, shouldn't have equal labor associated, right? right? Yeah. Or or they should be like, all right, let's do plan A and B, and then if we have time, we'll do plan C or something like that. There are a lot of characters in this episode. It feels very dense that way. You get your mains with O'Brien and Garrick, and right away, there's a tension between them over the whole Setlick 3 situation. Yeah. O'Brien is sort of, maybe is is considered by the Cardassians to be kind of a butcher. This idea of O'Brien being the hero of Setlick 3 was a thing that was discussed during the, during TNG. You remember that episode? I think it was The Wounded, when, uh, when we got to meet O'Brien's former captain, Captain Maxwell. That was one of the great TNG episodes, that one with Maxwell and, yeah. and like singing war songs together and stuff. Like, O'Brien is sort of legendary in this way, and, and you only got a little glimpse of that in The Wounded, but you really get the sense that the Butcher of Setlick 3 is a rep that O'Brien uh, bristles at a little bit, and it's something that Garrick really relishes in pressing that bruise. Yeah. The terminology Garrick uses, of course, is the hero of Setlick 3, but... Um, it seems like heroism earned in the process of ending the lives of a lot of Cardassian soldiers. And and it comes up eventually in the episode that, like, O'Brien doesn't even know how many people he killed in that, in that action. It's something he probably has a lot in common with Worf with, right? Like, Worf probably doesn't know either how many people <laughs> he's just killed. <laughs> how many people have you, like, beamed over to their ship and just bat left right <laughs> he like that's a fingers and toes situation for Worf <laughs> uh, yeah and and you try to avoid scenarios that provoke Worf to taking his shoes off yeah because <laughs> gross yeah yeah you you think you use a mechleth like what do uh, what do Klingon personal hygiene utensils look like in the in the finger and toenail department. Oh, man. Yeah. Klingon toe jam has got to be real serious shit. Why in all of the Star Trek convention uh, merchandise spaces we've been to, has there never been a really rugged-looking toenail clipper that looks like <laughs> two batleths? <laughs> Do we have to come up with all this stuff? Apparently. I mean, I know that our The Warrior, The Legends t-shirt is flying off the shelves over at maxfunstore.com. It's already sold out. But it wasn't. But yeah, I mean, do we now need to do a set of clippers, one for your beard and two for your pubes? I'm ready to disrupt the science fiction personal grooming space. <laughs> That's what do you I'll... think that it's like, it's considered weird to use the same set of clippers on your right pubes as it is on your left, left pubes? That's just nasty, man. What the fuck? Yeah, you sick you piece sick of shit. Fuck. Maybe you get a little wild on one half and uh, <laughs> and in the other hemisphere you keep it tight. You, you do a little warrior scaping on, on one side and yeah. just uh, let it go let it go nuts on the other side? Whatever mood you're in. Yeah. Golden one thing that happens a bunch of times in this episode is we see uh, a, a, a Cardassian sort of Mancala game getting played, mm -hmm. and uh, 
Initially, it is Garrick up against Nog, who is part of the mission. Nog uh, comes aboard heavily armed with a crazy phaser rifle. Phased plasma rifle in the 40-watt range. But uh, but Nog and uh, Garrick have a kind of an interesting conversation about the game because Nog has this very like hyper-capitalist Ferengi approach to the way he plays a board game that Garrick says is like maladaptive to this game because this is a Cardassian game so it's all about like conquest and subjugation this is not a financial transaction and I thought that that was a really fun way to like the games that we play and like the 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 ideals that they espouse is such an interesting way to differentiate different species and different cultures yeah it really is I like that touch that game's gonna come back again later you just know it yeah. We get a lot of fun exterior shots of Empak Noor, and one of them is here as the runabout approaches. They can't just beam aboard because of the booby traps, and they can't just find a pylon to to land on. Like they, they can't do this conventionally, so they need to creep up to an upper pylon in order to board the station. And every time we see the exterior, uh, the station is a tilt, but There's one element to this shot that I really like that I feel like we don't get too often on Deep Space Nine, which is a parallaxing pan shot. And I think it is the one way you can really get a sense for the differences in size between the runabout and a station like this. Like when you're just locked off looking at a runabout zoom by and the station in the background, you don't really get it. But... That parallax effect, I think, really sells how differently sized the two things are, and it makes the station look huge. Yeah, it's a shot that I wish we'd gotten in season one, episode one. Right. Because you finally get to see, like, relative size in a three-dimension... You, know, you get a three-dimensional sense of it because of the way the camera moves. Right. And, uh, and yeah, like, they really do a nice job of making sure every time you see the station the camera's at an angle or the station is at an angle, which is like, I think it's something that, that uh, like the J.J. Abrams Star Trek film played with to great effect, and it is played with to great effect in this uh, episode, just making you feel ill at ease by showing the fact that vertical is kind of a is kind of a, an idea that uh, only exists on the on a planet. Even the very name is racist. (laughs) (laughs) And I also loved seeing Garrick in a spacesuit. Get people in spacesuits more often, Star Trek. It's great. Yeah, I agree. I mean, between the spacesuit and the phaser rifle that Nog is carrying, you get the sense that they kind of raided the Star Trek First Contact props room, right? Totally, yeah. It's nice. It's good to see that stuff get reused. It's too good to just languish. In storage. The concern here, and uh, and it is attendant to the fact that this is probably the episode of Star Trek that uses the word "booby" more than any other, mm. is that uh, is that the station is probably full of traps, and they're probably cued to non-Cardassian DNA. So that's why Garrick is the one to go aboard and like turn on all the lights and turn the gravity back on and everything. It's a fun moment of of a dead thing coming to life. And yeah. the station isn't the only thing, because as soon as we cut to the exterior, as the lights are coming on, we find ourselves inside the infirmary where a row of stasis pods has also come to life, and uh, a few of whom have living Cardassian inhabitants. 
God, this camera move is so cool because yeah. it goes from a very wide shot showing all three pods to like an ECU on the eye of one of them opening up. Yeah. And it's a it's a it's not a steady cam shot. It's a it's like a handheld camera move. Which, you know, like they, they really lean on handheld in this episode because yeah. it makes you feel so ill at ease. Right. And uh it's really great. It it, it, it is such a creepy shot. And, and they really nail the focus and the framing and everything. It's really great. Uh, we should mention that this episode is directed by Mike Vehar, and uh, the story is by Brian Fuller. And uh, Mike Vehar has a interesting reputation on Deep Space Nine as, as kind of a, uh, <laughs> a tryhard. Like, he was known as the guy who always ran long and, like, kept people on set extra long like all of his shooting oh, days shit. were, were wow. like that and uh he acquired the nickname v harder and v harder for <laughs> his willingness to put in long hours shooting which everyone else involved with the show having to stay on set along with him so not mm. a not a great reputation but he directed uh nine episodes of ds9 and uh the coming of age episode of tng wow Nine is kind of the magic number, right? Kind of is. Yeah, it is. It's the magic number. So they have to be super careful moving around this station. Like, the, the rules are, like, make sure you scan every area before you move into it. And, uh, and like, just tread super lightly because we have no idea what we're in for. And sort of a haunted house episode. Like, one of the upshots of the way they're getting the... A, B, and C list of equipment is we're all splitting up, and uh, and that's always a bad move in a horror film. You do get Stoltzoff and Nog having sex later on. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, they're punished for their teen love, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, and you're happy for Nog initially. You're like, yeah, finally, like yeah, that's Nog great. Can get it? Yeah, but then he's uh, killed in horror movie fashion. Yeah. The split up's fun. It adds to, I mean, it's big station, little people. Like that's one of the other stresses you feel. Like everything's dark. You're just with one or two people at a time. And you never quite feel safe no matter who you're with. Like very intentionally, O'Brien is pairing engineers with security officers. So the intent is to make them feel all right. But no one ever feels that way. Yeah, somebody that's going to know how to loosen all the bolts and get the right thing, and then right. somebody to watch that person's back. But, like, some people get paired with Garrick, for example. Right. And uh, and Garrick very quickly stumbles across Goo, which is, uh, he's, he's probably the worst possible person to stumble across this Goo, as we will come to find out. The shot is one of the first times that I really feel like the episode's director was inspired by aliens. There's that close-up to a hand recoiling from a handrail, and, and there's that, that biogenic compound on it. And yeah. you just know it's going to be bad news. Yeah. Garrick's got LV-426 problems, but a ze- xenomorph ain't one. Mm. <laughs> it's a mouthful, but I like it. <laughs> I wish he would have been at greater pains to wipe this off himself. <laughs> he, it, uh, it is impossible to wipe his hands off. Yeah. He just keeps it on while, uh, while the Bolian guy scans him. And then that's when they notice the infirmary with the stasis pods. And they find two of them are open and empty 
but one of them has a uh, has a, has had a girder fall into it and break the glass. It's a brutal case of girder murder, which is a you know a phenomenon that happens from time to time in Star Trek. Yeah, nothing more deadly than a girder in Star yeah. Trek. That's for sure. It's fun to see a uh, like a desiccated Cardassian though. I loved the I loved the the loaf being all like pulled pulled taut against the skull. It seems like space would be a place where you'd be most likely to find an old desiccated corpse of any kind. And yet you rarely see them in Star Trek. You see yeah. a, a recent phaser blasted person or bones. But rarely do you get the middle ground. Adam, you know where you see a lot of them, though, is the TNG episode Booby Trap. Yep. Which is the other episode that's in contention for most utterances of the word booby. You're right. What the hell? Which episode do you think has more of the word booby in it? The TNG episode Booby Trap or the DS9 episode Empak Nor? I'm going to find out right now. Ah, uh, God. Is it, is it chickening out to guess that they have the same number of utterances? No, I mean, push is is something that you could, uh, you could bet. <laughs> I, I love that you know that. <laughs> I, I would never know that. Okay, I, I called up Booby Trap. Let me get the other one going. All right, Ben. Uh, I have tallied the votes. The results are in. And uh, the the guy from Price Waterhouse Coopers is handing you the envelope. Would you believe that the TNG episode Booby Trap has five utterances of the word booby? The DS9 episode Empak Nor has five utterances wow. of the word booby. You are the winner, Ben. USA, USA, USA. Wow, I I was not expecting that. But, I mean, clearly, two of the top booby episodes in all of Star Trek. Yeah, I, and, and a telling about us that we are as conscientious of, of that yeah. <laughs> as we are. Nog and O'Brien are, uh, are, are continuing on Team Must Have uh, and doing their work on the station elsewhere. And unfortunately, Nog has left a tool on board the runabout that he has to go back to. So he, he scampers on back to where it is docked, and it is not where they left it. It is, in fact, spinning in space, and then a moment later explodes in space. Yeah. I loved the the uh, use of a lighting effect and reflection in the window. Yeah. When he watches this, because you know the camera cuts to like outside the space door in the upper pylon, and you see the reflection of the runabout exploding in the in the window. I wonder how many runs at this they gave Aaron Eisenberg because I really like the choice in his reaction here. But Nog as a character can be very screamy and panicky. And this is the change that being a cadet has made in him. Like I think pre 
Starfleet Cadet Nog would have screamed in this mm-hmm. moment, but something is hardened in him. And I think that that's a real credit to Aaron Eisenberg's choices in a, as an actor. Like he's really, he's really made major changes in how he plays the character yeah. to follow the character's story arc. Right. This is a really bad moment because like, like in a lot of horror films, you don't want your car to break down on the dark road. You don't want to be stranded. Yeah. And this is what has happened. Yeah. And uh, so that everybody gets together and this is kind of when all of the bad news uh, gets to everyone. It's We don't have a, an RV to get home in. And also there's two murdering Cardassians wandering around the station. And as they're talking about this, they also discover that all of their equipment has gone dead. There's uh, some kind of damping field. The phone lines have been cut. Yeah. To, and to continue the metaphor. To continue the homage to aliens. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? Right. It's, yeah. it's like exactly the same problem as we need to figure out a way to get in touch uh, with the mothership, and that means all of our plans have uh, have been sidelined while we deal with that. It's a pretty fun problem for an engineer to solve, though, because they are in this scrapyard. They have everything they need to solve the problem in kind of a MacGyver kind of way. Yeah. And so O'Brien redistributes his crew to tasks that have to do with gathering supplies in order to turn the station into kind of a giant telegraph machine. Right. This is a good plan, except for it has the effect, again, of splitting everybody up. Right. And so, in fairly short order, these these Cardassian guards who have been left behind to guard the station uh, start taking out crewmen. Yeah, and it's Stoltzoff and Perchetti that go first, and they go almost exactly like the first two in Aliens do. <laughs> like... One is pulled through a wall, one is thrown over a balcony. Like, I think that's, uh, like, they are the frost and crow of this episode. Yeah. That can't be an accident, right? No, that is, this is the Aliens episode of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. It's um, super fun, and even the music sting, you were mentioning the music earlier, like, that kind of cascade orchestration of what music sounds like during a jump scare definitely happens here. And super scary, like, the... The use of light and shadow and positioning the camera so that it's like looking through material. Like there's a great shot where the guy is like pulling a a circuit board or something out of something and you see the door up on the second level of the promenade. Yeah. And it and it like closes as he pulls the pulls the thing out like there's so many moments where the the composition of the shot is just like perfect to really like peg your your fear needle. Yeah, it's super effective. The lighting on the station, not just atmospherically, but how characters are lit, really evokes this feeling of aliens too. It's so much rim light and not a yeah. lot of uh, not a lot of key. Low and, key lighting all the way through. Yeah, it feels contextually understandable because of aliens you know like you know what this is supposed to feel like because you've seen it before but it's not a ripoff yeah it's a it's it's homage and yeah and like and i think that that's crucial right like it's not the story of aliens with deep space nine characters mapped onto it it's very much its own story like and i really like you know like there's the one guy who's like really interested in collecting like like memorabilia Uh uh-huh like 
He's a throwaway character that dies early in the episode, but he feels like super three-dimensional just because he has like a weird interest in that and there are two or three mentions of it. Like you feel those deaths a lot more because of things like that. Yeah, just a little personal information about each one is all you need. They find this guy and Stoltz off, the the one lady engineer, have have bought it. This is about when we start to see Garrick, like, kind of going for itchy scratchies on his neck periodically. Slightly subtler than, like, coughing up a a little hanky full of blood, but Uh uh, starting to pepper in the idea that Garrick is not well. Right. I don't intend to stand around waiting to be killed. I think what's interesting about this is that, that there are subtle physical changes to Garrick, but his attitude doesn't really feel that much different from how he was on the runabout. He's still goading O'Brien about what he did at Setlick 3. Right. He's wondering how much O'Brien may relish the chance to kill Cardassians again. You know, he's in a great deal of danger at this point, right? Because, like, at least Amaro among the the crew uh, seems to have a very itchy trigger finger. And Garrick is, is goading O'Brien to the point of almost, like, challenging him to to do something about the enmity he feels toward Cardassians. But O'Brien, to his credit, keeps a cool head uh, and is like very focused on solving the problem of being out of communication without a car to get home. O'Brien does that thing when you've got an employee you can't really control, and that's Garrick, right? Garrick doesn't <laughs> want to be a part of the team. He wants to go off on his own to kill the soldiers himself. And O'Brien sort of pivots his rebellion into something he can use, you know? Yeah. Like, he sort of plays it out in the moment, like, well, someone's got to be on Cardassian duty, and it might as well be Garrick. (laughs) So go ahead and kill the Cardis. Right. And he does effectively, because we almost immediately cut to Garrick's trap that he's laid for one of the soldiers. He's in the infirmary, and he's, like, loudly tapping on a computer, getting attention. Access denied. Access denied. Being the jangly keys that attracts this Cardassian soldier. And uh, he hides in one of these stasis chambers and pops out and gets the jump on the guy and, and kills him. He hides in the broken stasis chamber, crucially, which means he had to move all those creepy bones. You think he did? Yeah. You don't think he just got on top? No, I think he had to move those bones to get in there. Guess so. Tom Morga plays one of these uh, one of these evil Cardassians. Yeah, Tom Morga, we should say uh, a famous Jason. <laughs> one of the fam- one of the most famous Jasons. One of the best Jasons. I thought he no. looked familiar. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Garrick really enjoys doing this murder. Uh, we get a little scene in one of the cargo bays where Nog is asking. Chief, like, what gives with all this Setlick 3 stuff? Like, wh- why does that keep coming up? What did you do there? You know, the Chief is very circumspect about it. He's like, why does Garrett keep bringing up Setlick 3? The phaser was set at maximum. The man just, just incinerated there before my eyes. I was a soldier, Nog. Sometimes soldiers have to kill. And Garrick, like, comes back in crowing about the, the Cardassian he's killed gives the chief uh, the the emblem from the Cardassian so that he can give it to... Uh, I, well, I guess Pachetti is dead at this point, right? So it's just like in honor of Pachetti that he gives it to him? I think this moment serves to 
evoke the grief over Pachetti's death. Like, yeah. like, boy, wouldn't it be nice if you were alive? Because this he would have loved perfect. this. Yeah, it's yeah. that kind of feeling. It's sort of like the Jewish soldier in a in a World War II film taking home a, a luger that he took off of a, a, a Nazi officer or whatever, or a scalp. <laughs> yeah, in a bad World War II film, for example. But uh, Garrick wasn't just in the infirmary killing people and and moving bodies around. Uh, he he did, also got information. Yeah, he did some science in there. Uh, he found that psychotropic drugs were in the dead soldier's body, and uh, they were given to him in order to amplify a Cardassian's already there xenophobic feelings. Yeah, he was high as hell on racism drugs. It, it's a xenophobe amplifier. So they gave them a drug to make them hate anybody but Cardassians. Maybe it's an experiment that went wrong. And uh, and I, I think anybody that has watched Garrick scratch his neck two times already in this episode can do the math on Garrick has been dosed with this. Garrick's like, I found a prescription bottle uh, in his tunic. He had a He had a bottle full of... 4chan. <laughs> I've never heard of it. I probably shouldn't have eaten that booger I found on that railing. <laughs> yeah, and so now we're starting to understand that it's not just a neck scratch and sweats for Garrick, that his exposure uh, to whatever it is on the station is probably going to result in some violent consequences for everyone else. Because yeah. uh, I don't know if you've noticed, Garrick is the only Cardassian in this crew, so... Their ability to get along is going to be diminished. Morn, 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 sweet morn, morn, morn. You hear, buddy? Morn, oh. stop. Hammer time. And in very short order, the the remaining Cardassian soldier kills Bokta, and then Garrick kills the Cardassian soldier and Amaro, the last of O'Brien's crew. So uh, we are left with Garrick, Nog, and O'Brien being the only people alive uh, on the station. And uh, and O'Brien like finds Amaro just in time for Amaro to, like with his last breath, tell him who did the deed. Garrick has gone full racist. It's a shock when Garrick uh, stabs Amaro with the flux coupler, right? Yeah, I mean, like you see it coming, and it is still just like super dirty feeling. Yeah. And so uh, and so now it's kind of a O'Brien and Nog need to need to find and eliminate Garrick kind of kind of a deal, and uh, and they get they get a radio communication from him. He's up on uh, up on the command deck in in the uh, old station commander's office, and he's found a game of Cardassian Moncala that he would like the chief to come play with him. You, you often get, like, the climax of a conflict in television being, like, you know, protagonist, antagonist, finally reaching the same location and having their fight. And what's so interesting about what O'Brien is going through is that he's resisting the thing in him that is the Cardassian killer. Right. Like, he knows Garrick. He doesn't want to do it. A part of him wants to save him. A part of him resents that Garrick believes him to be a thing that he isn't. And yet a part of him knows that, like, he may have to kill a guy and become what Garrick is calling him. Yeah, is super uncomfortable with that. Mainly probably because he doesn't want to have to, like, look Bashir in the eye and tell him what he did. Is there a action figure of Setlick 3 O'Brien, which is, like, just the <laughs> Rambo'd out Miles O'Brien? <laughs> 
Would love to see that. Do you think uh, you think Keiko ever calls him Setlick Three O'Brien? They do like some kind of like sexy costume play where she's like, "Tonight I want the hero of Setlick Three to come home and take me." She she grabs a spoon from the play setting and like sticks it up to her forehead. <laughs> I want you to really ravage me, Miles. <laughs> Give it to me like you gave it to all those soldiers you killed <laughs> Jesus come on Keiko I want you to murder this fucking purse Miles <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reality is Keiko wishes she could get set like three a little more often than her birthday yeah so they head up to ops and uh, this is a classic Garrick trap yep you know they uh, you know you get O'Brien up in the commander's office uh, knocked down in the uh the huddle area in the center of the room and uh and the door slams shut and there's a there's a force field and then nog gets taken hostage by crazed racist garrick i think they did nog wrong here by by wrapping him up like a damsel in distress put on uh put on railroad tracks tied to a railroad track yeah. like i couldn't get that image out of my mind like the way that he's binded up evokes only that for me don't do it chief I really do like Garrick toward the end of this episode. He gets super schmeagle with his line reads and uh, and moody and I, I don't know. I just love it. He's totally crazed. They they like definitely hit him with the mister every time they yeah. get him on camera. He's like drenched in sweat. And uh, so they have to make like an agreement. Like we're going to meet it, uh, down on the promenade. No weapons. Let's talk this out. So uh, we get we get O'Brien kind of like lurking on the promenade, you know, running around with his gun. I feel like you got to turn the headlight off on your gun if you're trying to be sneaking around with a rifle guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, not looking good. O'Brien continues to negotiate. He's all right with meeting him without weapons on the promenade, and so they do. And the funny part is that they both arrive with weapons. Like neither of them are willing to trust the other, which is great. Yeah, very, very realistic, I think. Yeah. So they finally do drop their weapons and go hand-to-hand here, and the dark covers up the stuntmen cutting nicely. I thought this, this sequence cut together real nice. I agree. It was a fun Star Trek fight. Yeah. Kind of like uh, like Tiger Claw combat style. Too. I like that quite a bit, yeah. <laughs> Cardassians are so scaly, I can't believe that, that punching one would really do all that much. I wonder if you could like peel one of their scales to really to really hurt them. Yeah, I would like to see that. Go yeah, like really claw at him, O'Brien. Like 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 turn your hand around and claw outward to see if you can like separate some of those neck scales. O'Brien uses the power of engineering and not his fists to subdue Garrick because when he put his weapons down, he put a phaser on top of his tricorder, and then when he was thrown free from the melee, he taps his communicator badge, and uh, it triggers this improvised explosive that He's got uh, a great action movie quotable. Yeah. Maybe you're not a soldier anymore. You're right. I'm an engineer. It would have been great if, like, we cut from from Garrick to O'Brien, he triggers the thing, back to the explosion, and it's just like a red mist. <laughs> <laughs> 
That, Garrick's not on the show anymore, boys. <laughs> that blew way big. Yeah. So the chief goes and unties Nog, and then uh, you know they they look down at Garrick, and Garrick is moaning. So we know he's not he's not totally dead, but uh, but he's been taken off the board as a threat. And uh, and then we cut back to Deep Space Nine, and we know it's Deep Space Nine because it's like. The light is a little warmer, and uh, and the station is not at a weird angle. Yeah, it's funny how that's all the context you need. It's amazing. You can it's do really it with, well done. with light and angle. That's like it. the the like visual language of this show is so detailed and rich that they can they literally like one establishing shot, and you're there's no question in your mind where this is setting up the scene. You know what safety feels like, and you know what danger feels like based on those two things. They're in the infirmary, and Bashir is kind of getting Garrick back to health. Uh, they, he's, he's sort of detoxing on his racism drug. And uh, and Bashir is at great pains to say, like, like any anybody would have done what Garrick did when exposed to a drug like this. Like, this, he was not in control of his actions. So the two murders he did are going to be hard to blame on him. But nevertheless, there's going to be an inquest, and Garrick is going to have to answer for this in some way. Based on the show's track record, maybe he will, maybe he won't. But really awkward moment when Garrick asks O'Brien to talk to Amaro's widow for him, you know, knowing correctly that she's not going to want to talk to him. Oh, yeah, I guess Garrick only really killed one person. But I think you could make the case that he was responsible for Bakhtar's death. He sort of allowed it to happen. Yeah, he could have killed that other guy quicker and not allowed Bakhtar's neck to be broken. Yeah, Bakhtar went out ugly with that, yeah. like, mini garage door going down in his head. Yeah. It's, it's like no he was good. trying to follow Spock's Mark Iv torpedo tube out into space. <laughs> It just takes his head out there. <laughs> if the if he'd been any closer to O'Brien's little improvised explosive device, it would have killed him, but he just has a couple of broken ribs and a rung bell. Yeah, it's kind of a reverse slide whistle at the end, right? Like that realization that, yeah, he was trying to kill him. He just didn't. Yeah. So Garrick was right, kind of. Kind of. You really want to do this here now? Okay, okay, let's do it. Do it. Did you like the episode? Uh, I really did. I, I, uh, this is a, a weird day for me because I had like a bunch of medical stuff I had to go do. So I, I wound up uh, taking this episode on an iPad to the library and watching it at the library mostly, and then watching like the last ten minutes in the waiting room at my doctor's office. <laughs> but, Does that uh, make you the weirdo at the library? Like, are the uh, are the porn watching hobos the ones moving away from you? They saw me masturbating to Deep Space Nine, and they uh, they definitely moved to the other side of the of the computer area. <laughs> that guy's a real creep. <laughs> <laughs> Something wrong with him. <laughs> wow! Yeah. Did uh did it change your feelings about the show to to take it in a different environment? I mean, I think that what struck me about it was uh, this is a very like atmospheric episode, very uh, creepy episode, and yeah. I felt like it it was effective despite the fact that I wasn't in like a dark TV watching room 
with you know like i like it was far from a an ideal viewing experience and yet it was still very effective and i really liked it that's kind of a great litmus test for something like this like yeah it's sort of like uh, the thing with comedy that we talk about a lot which is like if you laugh and you're by yourself i think that's yeah. effective comedy but if you're scared watching a thing but you're also in public that's a check in the four column for intensity and horror Definitely. That's good. How about you? Did you like the episode? I really did, but it does suffer from the where is the little D problem that I think so often pokes a hole in an episode story. Like, you just, you have to believe that there's no other way to communicate with Deep Space Nine once you're stuck on this other station. Yeah. You have to rationalize the idea that even though they're in a dangerous place, the Defiant isn't going to go... Like, they're going to stuff a runabout full of all these people. But I was able to suspend that thinking, and I enjoyed the episode for being able to do it. Agreed. Uh, One thing that we cannot suspend is our program of Priority One messages, uh, because they're the thing that keeps the show going. You want to check out our inbox? Nah, let's not do it this time. All right. No, I'm just kidding. Let's do it. All right. You really had me going there. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Adam, we have a couple of priority one messages here. The first one is from Assistant Chief Engineer Christmas Tequila Shimoda. That sounds like a James Bond name. (laughs) It's to Ben and Adam. Uh, it goes like this. I know you like P1 questions, so I have two-ish. One. Adam, did you ever watch MacGruber with your wife? <laughs> no. And it's been something I've been wanting to do forever. Ben, I'm sure you have this this problem. I, w- I hesitate to call it a problem, but this challenge <laughs> also, which is like you want to share something you love so much yeah. with, your, with, with your special person, and you just know... That that's not going to go well, and so there's a there really isn't a a good time to present that and do that, and so I've been unable to make that happen. I have an idea. How about this? You're going to be in L.A. with your with your wife pretty soon. What about an evening where you and your wife and me and my wife order a pizza? And make some cocktails or something, and we watch MacGruber together. That sounds great. That's a fun group activity. I love it. I love it. Let's do it. He didn't. Uh, The second question. Do you think a lot of Starfleet Academy is just programming your brain to be able to speed read science? Elkars and Miles' wands seem to display a lot of information very quickly. Is any 40-year-old ensign to us like Khan is to Starfleet? Oh, interesting. So the question is basically like, are they, are they such brilliant geniuses? Like, like would they be such brilliant geniuses compared to us that they would be like Khan is to a Starfleet? Oh, interesting. I wonder to what extent Starfleet Academy is learning to learn in the way that you know so often school can be right now. Like, mm-hmm. like you learn tricks with how to do math formulas that are like shortcuts and there are some like reading techniques where you can like just look at a page of text 
and memorize it. And get the gestalt of it. Yeah, and I wonder I wonder how much of Starfleet Academy just might be that, knowing that information's going to be coming at you so fast. Right. Because, like, you don't actually have to know that much. It's like you have to know how to get at what you need to know to solve a given problem. And to share that thing that you know with people who can make decisions about how to address it. Yeah, like, they live in the in the hyper-Googleized future, right? Where, like, you don't need to remember anyone's phone number to tap your communicator badge and be in immediate contact with them. Yeah. Like, the, the number of facts you need to retain walking around is actually pretty low, but your <laughs> ability to get to facts quickly has to be very high. I was just thinking about how we never saw the scene of O'Brien rigging his phaser and tricorder bomb combo <laughs> and how what if that were just always a thing that that would happen if you tapped your communicator and your phaser and your tricorder were next to each other like you have to make very sure when you put them on your belt that they are on opposite sides of your waist <laughs> otherwise you go boom Fun. Uh, ben our second priority one message is from Josh and is for Carl and the message goes like this hey Carl 226 it's been a blast working on actual ion drives with you here's hoping our little engines make it to the moon I'm gonna miss always doing bits literal and figurative may your bit moments be few and far between wow sounds like we got a couple of rocket scientists here some kind of brilliant geniuses of science and engineering I would like to know more about that Indeed. I went to a uh, warehouse office space in Seattle one time where they were developing a fusion propulsion system for NASA. And it was like one of the coolest things I ever got to do. The the guy was like, yeah, this is a a fusion rocket engine. (laughs) No big deal. Yeah, this is my garage. (laughs) Yeah. But he had like a real NASA grant. He was like a a UW professor. Fucking nuts. (laughs) Well, I love a question p1 and i love a p1 from a couple of real life rocket scientists so that's cool to hear from carl and josh it sure is uh if you'd like to leave a p1 of any kind you can do that by going to maximumfun.org slash jumbotron it's a hundred bucks for a personal message and 200 for a promotional message and we really appreciate everyone who does that because it helps us cover the costs of making this show hey adam it's that ben did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda! Yeah, I think I'm going to uh, go outside the show and assign my Shimoda to Andrew Robinson. He's so great in this episode, and uh, the little bit of reading I did about it revealed some reluctance on his part to play Garrick in this way. Uh, hmm. Andrew Robinson was the psycho in the Dirty Harry movie. I, I've changed my mind. I'm going to let her die. Like, that's sort yeah. of his claim to fame as an actor. And he had thought that he had put that kind of role behind him. It's one of the reasons he enjoyed playing Garrick so much. And so uh, when he got the script initially, he was he was not that into it. But I think you and I agree after watching his performance... Uh, Pretty incredible work by Andrew Robinson. And I hope, like, the Shimoda is about having the most fun. I hope it was at least a little bit of fun for him uh, to do this because uh, I really enjoyed his performance quite a bit. I did too. 
I wonder, as an actor, how much power you have in a situation like that. If you if you're like a series regular, but not in the main cast on a show, and they send you a script and say, "Hey, we're going to need you for these dates," and you really don't want to do that script. Yeah. They can't force you to do it, right? There's kind of a rocky road to this episode being made. They went through a bunch of script versions, and the early ones were not great. And several of the actors came out and said, you know, if we had to do those first couple of drafts, it really would have been a dog of an episode. Wow. It really makes you think about how many of those stories an actor has of, like, the near misses for a beloved character that that they somehow found a way to avoid uh, in this way. For every Empoch Noor, there is the version of that episode that is like, is potentially very bad and could damage how we feel about a character forever. So, <laughs> Yeah, seriously. Well, I think, uh, yeah, whatever happened behind the scenes to get the script into shape worked. Yeah. What about you, Ben? Uh, my drunk Shimoda is Nog, and it's for the moment when Garrick gets the drop on him because Nog has that big crazy phaser rifle, <laughs> which uh, Garrick takes off of his hands. But Nog still has the hand phaser in his belt visibly when that happens, and I just thought he was gonna like reach down for it and like drop to the floor and stun Garrick. You know, <laughs> like it would have just it would have been the easiest thing in the world, like a very low risk move. Yeah. And uh, he didn't do it. So Nog is my drunk Shimoda. The Nog you get in this episode is the brave in the face of death Nog, but he's never resistant to his situation. And it made me wonder when you see that phaser on his belt, like if there was a moment that was cut from the episode that went like, I know Garrick and I like Garrick. I can't draw my weapon on him, even though he's clearly in the sway of this psychotropic drug, you know? Right. Yeah. You just you just left to infer that. But yeah, that's an interesting bit. I mean, you could you may even call it a mistake. Like I don't I don't know why they'd leave a phaser on him. I don't know either. it is. But he's my drunk Shimoda. Gotta get that get that gold press A good time so often has a downside, doesn't it? Especially when it comes to stuff that you put in your birdie. We've all been hungover before. I mean, many of us have, I guess. Or we've had too much jazz in our gummy. And that sucks, right? Because you don't think about the time after the good time that you've been trying to have a good time. That's why I like Lumi Labs so much. It's the predictability. Through painstaking trial and error, I have found my perfect dose. It's what I can depend on when I can use a little more chill, a little help getting into a creative headspace, And I don't need to have too much fun doing whatever it is I need to be doing. And I'm so glad that Microdose is available nationwide. That means just about anyone can try it. To learn more about Microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use the code SCARVES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com and the code is SCARVES. You might have heard us talk about Squarespace before and you're thinking, what do I need a website for? I already have a bunch of profiles across the different social medias. But isn't it time you had a place online that wasn't owned by a social media company? How about you take control of your online identity with a website of your own? For that, there's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can buy a URL and build a customized website with your name and not a giant social media company's name with your name attached and a bunch of numbers at the end. With Squarespace, you can have a place on the internet personalized 
to your aesthetic that lets you tell people about who you are instead of an algorithm. And the best part is, you don't have to be an experienced designer or a web page creator to make something great because Squarespace is always there for you with their award-winning 24 by 7 customer support. Don't settle for being another company's product. Be your own product with a website that's all you with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. The code is SCARVES. Think it. Dream it. Make it with Squarespace. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Well, uh, no mistakes around here for you and me as we think about what episode we're going to watch next. And the way we're going to watch it is dictated to us by the Game of Buttholes. Will of the Prophets. Yeah, our next episode is Season 5, Episode 25, In the Cards. Jake and Nog risk an intergalactic incident in an innocent quest to lift Cisco's spirits. Hmm. An intergalactic incident? Like another like aliens from another galaxy are characters in this episode? Is that what is that what this is saying? Sounds like the stakes are pretty high. Fuck. But will the stakes for us be high, Ben? You're required to learn as you play. Roll. We're currently on square thirty-five. One square ahead is a Canar with Damar episode. Uh, and that, I believe, is the only thing in range for our little runabout. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to go ahead and roll this bone at him. Um, I hope I don't channel you and roll a Canar with Damar. But I have not channeled you. I rolled a five. Chula! Did I win? Hardly. And uh, I've, I've jumped us all the way to square 40. 
Wow, well, moving right along. Now in range of a Coco Nono, I believe. Oh, I like that. Don't don't mind a nice Coco Nono from time to time. Sure don't. Also don't mind the great support we get from our viewers. Those that go to MaximumFun.org slash donate are the ones that help keep this show going month to month. They sure are. Uh, we also got to thank our buddy Adam Ragusia, who makes original theme music for the program. Uh, based on the original theme music by Dark Materia. And uh, Adam Ragusia, now a big-time YouTube celebrity, cooking all kinds of delicious, easy recipes for the home cook on his Adam Ragusia cooking channel. Just search for his name on, on YouTube. You'll find it. Want to give a write-on to Bill Tilly? He's at Bill Tilly 1973 on Twitter. He is the creator of the trading cards based on our show uh he is right now creating cards for star trek discovery the one thing you can't do around bill tilly is just mention something offhand because he will just go and do the thing which is (laughs) what he's done in going back and making cards for season one at this point of star trek discovery and it is a trip to go back and think about those episodes now a couple years old Amazing that we said anything that I think is funny, but uh, apparently we did because I saw <laughs> I saw some funny stuff on those cards. Yeah, fun to go back and uh, and re-experience that. Good job, Bill Tilly. A plus. Uh, we we don't deserve you. I always say that. Thank you to everyone uh, who donates, and also to everyone who goes on Apple Podcasts or whatever their podcatcher is, and uh, and recommends the show using whatever tools they make available on there. That really helps us out. Yeah, if you're not going to support the show month to month, uh, find someone who will. Yeah, recommend it to uh, a friend, family member, or a stranger on the internet. With that, we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of The Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine that tries to remember who Jake Sisko is. <laughs> MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.